So we're going to start this morning talking a little bit about uh, Paul's ministry, Paul's life and ministry. It's a series called The Call. Uh, I am going to tell you that next week Pure Sound is going to be singing. So we're going to start, we're going to take a week off, then we're going to come back to it just to confuse you. So, but that's kind of the way the schedule fell on this. Also want to, uh, uh, this morning as we go, just to let you know that early this morning we received greetings from our brothers and sisters who are in the Holy Land. Uh, they worship this morning on uh, the Sea of Galilee. Those of you that have been before know, you know, you go out on a boat on the sea and it's like, it's like glass early in the morning. It's so calm. Uh, so they worshiped and sent their uh, prayers and their thoughts to us and asked us to continue to hold them and our thoughts and prayers as they're in, uh, traveling through the Holy Land and worshiping over there. Uh, and I started this morning off, uh, I was in uh, Nashville, I came home from Corpus and spent two nights at home, then flew to Nashville for a, a meeting with the, uh, the board for our ministry down in El Salvador that we work with. And uh, so this morning I got up and uh, got to open a card that my uh, daughter-in-law sent me for Father's Day and it was just kind of, it was interesting to me, um, uh, and you may or may not be aware of this, but one of, the, one of the biggest predictors of juvenile delinquency and poverty is the absence of a father in the home. And we see a lot of that brokenness uh, in that ministry in El Salvador, a tremendous amount of that. And, uh, and so, you know, to go from having all those discussions and to come home then and have that for my daughter-in-law was uh, just reminded me of the importance for those of you uh, in the congregation uh, of the role of fathers in the family. Uh, somebody has, and I can't, this is not mine, somebody else uh, came up with this and said, uh, you know, when we're thinking about this, instead of allowing the uh, failures of our earthly fathers to uh, shape our image of who our heavenly father is, we should allow the image of our heavenly father to inspire us who are earthly fathers. Uh, so I would just commend that to you in, in all ways, uh, whether you're fathers by blood or fathers in the faith, uh, that you would allow the heavenly father to inspire you uh, in all the ways possible and to recognize that in that there, there's a call that's every bit as valid as uh, what we're going to be talking about with the apostle Paul. When Paul starts off the first part of his life, we're going to touch on that this morning, just the first part of his life. Uh, he talks about um, until the time of his conversion, uh, he describes himself in this way. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of an important city, circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, educated strictly according to our ancestral law, being zealous for God. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age. I persecuted this way up to the point of death by binding both men and women and putting them in prison. And thus began the first part of his life. We'll pick it up from there. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come on this morning, we give you thanks for your presence with us and ask you to open us up to what it is you would wish to say to us this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm going to start by setting a few things uh, just in context a little bit about Paul's life. Um, this is a kind of a little basic timeline. Well, maybe I am. Maybe. There it is. Uh, and you can see on here that Paul is born somewhere between 5 B.C. and 10 A.D., uh, again, because he's not a, a huge public figure, uh, we don't have the accuracy to, to nail it down more than that. But he's somewhere in this time. He's born uh, in the city of Tarsus. He goes up there. Uh, around 16 to 22, he travels to Jerusalem and studies under the rabbi Gamaliel. We'll come back and talk about that a little bit more. Uh, and having studied there for a while, once he finishes his studies, 
he is uh, beginning to establish himself as a rabbi on his own. And as part of that, uh, he becomes involved in this uh, campaign, if you will, uh, to quiet the followers of Jesus, who at that time were known as, as the followers of the way. Uh, and that begins around 32. Um, these are all estimated times. Uh, it's around th AD 35 that he's arrested. I mean, he's converted as he's traveling to Damascus. And then following that conversion experience, he spends some time in Arabia uh, before returning to Damascus and being in ministry for a while there. Uh, around 38, he travels down to Jerusalem and will uh, visit with the apostles, Peter and James, and the rest of the apostles in the city of Jerusalem before going back to Tarsus for a while. And he spends about 10 years back in Tarsus at that time. Uh, you know, we, we think that the boomerang uh, generation is something new that we've come up with. Y'all need to know this. No, it's not. It's been going on a long time. Um, actually, uh, in, in the Middle East, the, the custom is that until children are married, uh, they come back and they remain in their parents' home. Uh, so that's actually the, the common thing to happen there. We, seems, we think we're coming up with something new, but actually they've been doing it that way for thousands of years. And if you travel over there in some of the older parts of the cities, you'll notice that the houses are, look kind of like boxes that have been stacked on top of each other. Because what will happen is the parents' home will be here. Then when the kids come back, they'll just build another story on top of that. And that's where the kids will live. And if they're still there when their kids are born, they'll build another story and add that on. And they'll just keep stacking up as much as the structure will hold. And various generations of the family will all live together. So if you think you've got it bad, <laughs> right? I mean, just think you've got your parents and then your kids are above you and your grandkids are above that. And so, you know, and, and their kids are up there somewhere. I mean, so, uh, and if uh, a generation, if there's not a marriage, eventually what will happen is as the parents die off, they will move down a floor into the parents' home when those parents pass away. So uh, you'll notice that if you go in parts of the old city, you'll, you can see that kind of construction going on. And Paul does that. It goes back home, and he's there for 10 years before he actually begins his ministry uh, in that place. Uh, now, he's actually born in the city of Tarsus, and that may be uh, unfamiliar to some of us. Uh, it's not a, a city we hear a lot about. Uh, we're more familiar with Jerusalem down here. Here's Caesarea on the coast, the big uh, port the uh, city of Damascus is here, and here's Antioch, and then up here is Tarsus. And Tarsus is actually a pretty major city in this period of time. This is a port right here coming on where the river comes in. Uh, there's a major port there, and Tarsus is a crossroads of commerce because all of the uh, goods and supplies that are going into the interior of Asia Minor are coming in through Tarsus and then being brought across a pass in the Taurus Mountains here that's known as the Cilician Gates. Uh, and brought into the interior area to go to the various cities. So Tarsus is actually quite a, quite a crossroads. I mean, there's a lot of commerce there. Uh, it's a very metropolitan area, uh, 200, 250,000 people, something like that. Uh, it has various enclaves, uh, different ethnic enclaves, uh, different religious enclaves uh, in the city, a uh, very multicultural kind of setting. Uh, it's a setting that you and I would be uh, very familiar with uh, in a lot of ways, uh, because those of us who've grown up, especially if you've Grown up in one of the major cities in the U.S. or one of the port cities in the U.S., uh, you see that a lot. I mean, we have different groups that come in and they settle there, and so you have all these different cultures kind of coming together. Paul grew up in that. We sometimes think of ourselves as being unique in our culture, uh, but actually uh, the culture in Tarsus was very similar to what we're at. Uh, as people have uh, unearthed different kinds of documents, uh, personal letters, uh, government documents and so forth, and those have gotten uh, translated across into English, sometimes, uh, especially in the last 20, 30 years. When you read those, 
they sound eerily familiar. Uh, you know, people talking about divorces and who gets this and who gets that and where the kids are going and who, you know, I mean, all these kinds of things that we think we've invented actually are going on way back then at the beginning of the Christian era. So uh, it's really nothing new. Uh, and so Paul grows up in a culture that's very similar to what we're used to, which may be one of the reasons that he's able to speak so clearly um, into our culture at times. Um, the city of Tarsus, uh, the, uh, Strabo once wrote about it and said, the inhabitants of this city apply to the study of philosophy and to the whole encyclical compass of learning with so much ardor that they surpass Athens, Alexandria, and every other place which can be named where there are schools and lectures of philosophers. I think Strabo was biased. Um, I, don't, I don't think it really passed up Athens and Alexandria. Those of you that know that part of the history, I mean, those were the two great centers of learning. But nonetheless, what he wants you to understand is Tarsus is not some backwater. Uh, it's a major city. It's a major city of commerce, and there is a, a lot of educational opportunities there. So growing up there, uh, Paul is going to have uh, a rather unique education. He's going to grow up being very educated uh, through the synagogue. Uh, he's going to know Hebrew. He's going to know this Torah, the scriptures. Uh, he's going to be very well educated and very grounded in that. But he's also going to be educated in Greek thought and Greek language. Uh, and so he grows up educated kind of in, in both of those areas, which is rather unique. Uh, we in America are descendants of the Greco-Roman culture. That's how we think. Uh, we are linear in the way that we think. We assume that history is always moving forward in progress. Uh, our language structure is very similar to Greek, very dissimilar from Hebrew, uh, and so it's very similar to that kind of pattern. Our political culture of, you know, uh, when we think of democracies and republics and so forth, we owe a lot of that to the Greek-Roman culture. So, so we're much more in tune with that. Uh, Eastern culture tends to be much more uh, circular in its understanding. Uh, they don't think so much of history as progressing as they think of it as repeating itself. Uh, and so their, their uh, understanding of the world tend to be um, more circuitous than what we're used to. Uh, if you've ever lived in that part of the world or, or spent much time with folks from that part of the world, you've been in a conversation with them at some point, and, and all of a sudden you feel like you're having deja vu. Didn't we already talk about this? Well, yes, you did. Uh, but they've just come back around to it, and that's a very common thing. The writings of the early church fathers in the first several hundred years of the church, you can tell clearly which part, when you're reading through it, Clearly, you can see which part, you know, how they're influenced. Uh, those that are more of the Syrian church and have more of that Eastern kind of influence to what their writing is, uh, the writing will, it'll, it'll just seem like they're chasing their tails when you're reading through it. And you just haven't, you really have to struggle to figure out what they're doing sometimes. Whereas people that uh, were writing from more uh, the position like in Alexandria in Northern Africa, uh, their writing will sound very similar. To, and you'll read through it and go, oh yeah, I get this. Um, and probably... For Paul, uh, the place you see that kind of combined influence the most is when you read through his letters. I mean, you may not have noticed this, but watch for it when you're reading sometimes. Uh, you'll see a whole paragraph, and it will be one sentence. The whole paragraph will be one sentence, which would have driven your English teachers crazy in school. Uh, but it's that, that merger of the, the Eastern and the, the Western kind of way of thinking and talking that comes together in him. And it made him uniquely positioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles because he was able to take concepts and understand them, whichever way they were expressed, and, and to carry them across that divide and take them back and forth. 
So he's able to, to kind of bridge that gap and, and, and bring that material back and forth across those gaps between the different cultures, uh, which is one of the unique things that he brings to his whole ministry. So he, he's educated in Tarsus, has a very good education in Tarsus. Um, his family probably was fairly prominent because after he finishes there, he is sent to Jerusalem to study under Rabbi Gamaliel. Uh, and Gamaliel is like the leading teaching rabbi of that period of time. I mean, he, this, is, this is not everybody can get in there. And so Paul goes and studies under him, and, and you hear Paul's language when he was describing himself. You know that he actually exceeded others of his age. Uh, you know, that's one of the things you learn about Paul is Paul has a fairly strong ego, yes, uh, and, and there's some ambition behind that too. Uh, but he studies under Gamaliel for a period of time, and then he launches out to begin his own life as a rabbi. And as he begins to do that, I mean, not only is he teaching, uh, but he's part of this group that is persecuting uh, the early, early followers of the way. Part of that is his zealousness for his Hebrew faith. And you, you need to hear that, that. I mean, he is committed to this and he is dedicated to this, and these people are corrupting the faith. And so that's part of it. The second part, though, is here's a way that he can make a name for himself. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a combination probably of those two, uh, both a, a protecting and pursuing his own faith, but also wanting to make a name for himself. And so early on, uh, he, is, uh, he's really, he goes by the Hebrew name Saul. Saul's the Hebrew version. Paul's the Greek version. Uh, he goes by Saul, and he's known as Saul the persecutor early on. Uh, there's a story where uh, Stephen is being stoned. Uh, they drag Stephen out of the city, and they begin to stone him. And witnesses lay their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. And that day a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And you hear that, that breathing threats and murder. It's, it's, it's not just that he's uh, wanting to do this, not just that he's angry about it, but I mean, he's breathing. I mean, it's, it's so much a part of him that with every breath, this kind of anger is burning in him as he is going to Damascus. The letters are letters of introduction uh, to the uh, leaders, the rabbis of the synagogue, so that he is able to find these followers of the way and bring them bound back to Jerusalem for trial and imprisonment. It's on that journey uh, that Paul's life uh, begins to change in ways he never expected. Uh, later in his trial, he's going to recount what happened uh, to the Roman rulers. With this in mind, I was traveling to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest when at midday along the road, Your Excellency, I saw light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and my companions. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. And I asked him, Who are you, Lord? The Lord answered, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and testify to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. 
I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul is going down the road, and, and all of a sudden there's this brilliant light. He falls on the ground. Uh, he's actually blinded by it. And, and I'm sure at that moment the first thing that Paul thought was, I am done for. I mean, you know, if you've been persecuting this group and all of a sudden you're going down the road and you encounter uh, the, the, the Lord, the risen Christ in this kind of power, uh, probably Paul's expectation was that that was it. God was going to strike him down right there and then. But that's not what happens. And this is the point at which Paul begins to change. Because instead of being struck down, I mean, he experiences God's forgiveness and God's mercy. And that will forever change him. Now, I want to be clear. Some people talk about this and say, well, you know, Paul was completely changed. That's really not true. Uh, Paul, for the rest of his life, he's going to have a strong ego. He's going to have a strong commitment. He's going to have a strong dedication. That same energy that he used to persecute the church with, he's going to use to evangelize with. I mean, there are, there are things about who he is and, and his nature and his character of himself that aren't going to change. Uh, this background in both the Hebrew and the Greek camp is not going to change. But he's going to be reoriented completely. His direction is going to change. And for the first time, he's going to understand God not simply as the God of the law and a God of judgment, but of God of forgiveness and a God of mercy. So God raises him up. Uh, sends him into Damascus uh, to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And this is uh, in the old part of the city uh, where it's, uh, the, the house is. He sends him there and, uh, and, and gives him a vision that a man named Ananias is going to come to him. And then God speaks to Ananias. Uh, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he's praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. That's Ananias very nicely saying, uh, God, are you sure? I think you got the wrong man, God. I no, wait. We're, we're talking about Saul, right? I mean, the guy that's, you know, dragging us out and having us killed and stoned. And all. You, uh, you sure about this, God? I, I, no, I think you're mistaken. He's being very polite about it, right? But, but nonetheless, that's, that's basically what he's saying back to God. And the Lord says to him, go. For, don't you hate that? And God does that to you. Go. For he's an instrument whom I've chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias probably thought, well, okay, if he's going to suffer, <laughs> if he's going to suffer, I like that part. I'll go talk to him then. But, but you know, I want you to think, Ananias, I mean, this man in this moment becomes a true agent of God because I am sure that what Almost all of the earlier followers of the way would have loved to have done was seen Paul done away with. And instead, Ananias is called to go and minister to him. 
And what was that like for Paul to be there and to be blinded and have this man come who he knows is a follower of the way? He can't see him. He can't defend himself. What's he going to do? What's going to happen? How's this going to turn out for him? I mean, is it going to be okay or not? So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus. I mean, again, he's, he's now had... First, this experience of, of Jesus on the Damascus Road, and now Ananias has come to him, and once again, he's experienced grace and forgiveness and mercy. And that becomes a key part, then, of Paul's understanding of God, something that he's going to preach. Now, as he goes into uh, this period of time in Damascus, <clears throat> after he gains his strength, you know, he's starting to um, go in and, and preach at the various synagogues and, and confront the Jewish leaders of Damascus with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, so now, you know, instead of making just one side angry, you know, just the Christians angry, he's, he's now making the Jews of Damascus angry as well. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they're, they're not real thrilled with him. And uh, after some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, a couple of things. I'm going to make a couple of quick comments. One, all through Scripture, sometimes you'll see that, that, that language of the Jews, and, and it's real easy for us to become judgmental about that. Uh, and indeed, and historically, we have done a great job of becoming judgmental about that. Um, but you need to understand the context of it, that uh, in some places it just refers to some of the leaders of some of the, the synagogues. Uh, but, but really, they're just using a shorthand to describe these folks. It's not intended to be uh, any kind of a slur against them. Um, and, and, and as he gets into this, you know, one of the things about Saul is he, he's a new believer. And some of you know this. I mean, when you encounter people who've had some kind of powerful experience of God and they've converted into new believers, man, they just want to tell everybody about it with great energy, Right? I mean, it's one thing to have somebody who comes along and has been doing this for a while, and, you know, and, uh, but man, Paul is on fire. And so while they might have tolerated somebody that would behave themselves, they, they found it very difficult to tolerate Paul. And so they plotted to get rid of him. And, and the other followers of the way in Damascus have to sneak him out of the city. So let me, let me stop for a minute and, and let's talk a little bit in this story. I mean, this, this experience that Paul has, part of that call is because of who he is, his unique position in the world, that he understands the Greek and the Hebrew culture. Um, he, he's well-educated. He can translate things across that, and he's got the strength to move forward with that. Th those are things that are part of Paul, who he is. And when God calls us into ministry, God, God uses those parts of us that, you know, not necessarily are, are, you know, some kind of, you know, Holy Spirit kind of gift or anything, but just, just those unique things that have to do with our life. Um, you know, people that have had a death in their family oftentimes are the best people to talk to somebody else who is recovering from grief. Uh, folks who have been through divorce are sometimes the best people to work with somebody who's going through a divorce. Folks who have uh, recovered from an addiction can be the best people to lead an addiction group. 
So there, there's these ways in which God uses those things that, that have happened, that have happened in our lives. God uses those as ministry to someone else. Henry Nowen has a whole book on it. It's called The Wounded Healer. Um, it's all about how the, the things that, that we go through in life that are difficult for us or unique to us uh, become things that God can use to reach someone else. And God certainly is going to do that with Paul through all of his ministry. Uh, that's certainly going to be part of it. The other part is, you know, Paul has this woohoo, amazing conversion experience. And, uh, and for a lot of us, it's just not like that, is it? I mean, I know when I was going through seminary, we were all having to talk about our call. You know, some people have, these, you know, they have visions and they hear voices and all this kind of stuff. And other people are kind of going, uh, no, not really. It didn't happen like that for me. And you're thinking, man, I wish I had that story. Uh, but sometimes we don't have that story. And sometimes our story is, is much more mundane. But don't think that makes it any less powerful. We don't know Ananias' story, but his part is crucial. And it's not so much whether the call itself is, is magnificent, it's what you do with it. And are you open to it? You know, Paul could have gone through that experience on the Damascus Road and just said, no thank you. But he chose to step into that grace, and that made all the difference. It, it, it's not the magnificent story about the call. It's how you respond to the call that's important. Now, Paul, at this point in his life, he's had that amazing experience with, with Jesus on the road. Uh, he's had that amazing experience with an Ananias coming into him. And, and then these people have tried to kill him. And, and, you know, that's kind of a mixed message, isn't it? You know, oh, we love you, we forgive you. Now we're going to kill you. Uh, you know, it's kind of a, I, I, I don't know what to do with this. You know, and so I, he's, he's sorting it out, and he needs some time to sort it out. So uh, like many of the figures in Scripture, he takes some time, and he goes into the desert. Uh, the prophets do it. Jesus has his time in the wilderness. Paul has his time in Arabia. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem of those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. So when they lower him over there, he goes off into Arabia and hangs out down there for a while to sort through all of this. Because really, um, the, the pattern in Scripture is, is folks who are going to be in this intense kind of ministry like this, they need to work through all those kinds of things. So Paul goes to Arabia, and it's in that time, uh, we're not really sure for exactly how long, but it's in that time that, that he receives the fullest revelation that comes to him from Jesus Christ. Um, Paul writes and says, I want you to know that the gospel was that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul wants to be really clear with you that, that what he's sharing with you is, is what Christ has shared with him. That he hasn't just heard this secondhand, and he's not just repeating what someone else has said. And when you read through his letters, every once in a while you'll come across a phrase that'll sound something like, uh, I don't have a word from the Lord about this, but this is what I think. And when he's doing that, he's letting you know, okay, this is my opinion. This is not a word from God. This is just what I think as Paul. But if you don't see that kind of a disclaimer being put out there, that, that he wants you to understand that what he is sharing with you is something that God has shared with him. It's, it's, it's his knowledge and there's a lot of speculation that much of that came during that time in Arabia. 
Following that, he comes back to Damascus, uh, spends some time there before he goes down to Jerusalem uh, to meet the original apostles. And, and he's going there basically to offer himself for service. But remember, he's still Saul the persecutor. And, and so they're not really sure about him. You know, should we trust this guy or not? What do we do with him? We're not too sure. Um, and at that point, um, uh, he has to have some help. So when Paul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They thought he was trying to trick them. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. If it had not been for Barnabas, Paul might not have been in the apostle. You know, all of us, when we're, when we're starting our journey of faith, we need people who will encourage us and support us and sometimes who will intercede for us. Because sometimes it's hard for people to believe. Oh, him? Oh, her? I don't think so. And someone sometimes has to vouch for you. Now, Barnabas is a, a, an important figure in Paul's early ministry. Um, and um, that's not the right slide. So uh, we, we hear a little bit about who Barnabas is here. That's not the right slide either. Let's see if I can find the right one here. I took my, son's, my glasses off. Uh, so Acts tells us that Barnabas was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. His real name is Joseph. That's his given name. To whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas. That's a nickname, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, this is a unique individual. I mean, he sells his property, brings it, gives it to the apostles. He's an encourager. He's somebody that lifts up other people. Uh, he's somebody that's strong in ministry himself, but he's also one of those people that lifts up people around him. And Paul needs that. He needs someone to vouch for him. He needs someone to guide him. Because remember, Paul can be a little bit impulsive at times. Uh, and, and he needs somebody to lift him up and, and, and encourage him as he begins this. And so God provides him with that person. He gives him Barnabas, who's going to come alongside of him and, and carry him and, and walk with him. And, and when the time comes that the church in Jerusalem is thinking about the church in Antioch and saying, who can we send to go to Antioch? Uh, they turn to Barnabas and say, Barnabas, why don't you do that? And Barnabas says, I'll go under one condition. I want to take my brother Paul with me. Because he knows that Paul is uniquely positioned in his understanding to speak to the people. And so uh, uh, Barnabas uh, comes, he sees the grace of God, rejoices, he exhorts them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion because Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were brought to the Lord through him. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Remember up to this point, they're followers of the way. Uh, it's here that they first get that name. So, so Barnabas it, it goes, he finds somehow, he finds in Tarsus, he finds Paul. He brings him down to Antioch, and they begin together. And originally, Barnabas is the lead, and Paul's is the apprentice, if you will. But over the course of time, that role is going to shift. And Paul's going to become the prominent one, and Barnabas is going to become his supporter and encourager. And when we begin to move forward in our faith and we begin to grow in our faith, we all need people like that around us. Uh, you know, we need those Barnabas people around us uh, because we're going to encounter things. We're going to run into obstacles. We're going to have struggles. We need someone who will be beside us and, and will, one will vouch for us and intercede for us, but will also encourage us and guide us and lift us up. 
who's that person in your life? And who's the person that has been there for you, that encourages you when you get discouraged, that lifts you up when you're down, that helps you understand things that you can bounce ideas off of, that supports you and builds you up? Who's willing to let you actually be center stage while they stay off to the side supporting you? I mean, the beginning of Paul's ministry paints this picture of of God selecting someone who is uniquely, uniquely qualified to speak to the Gentiles, to take the faith of, of this rabbi from the Middle East and help translate that story of Jesus Christ, the the very Son of God, to take that and translate that in ways that the Gentile world could understand it. God calls him. God reorients him. God teaches him about forgiveness and mercy, both through his presence with him, but also through people like Ananias and Barnabas. And through Barnabas, God begins to throw Paul out into his own ministry. Next time we talk about this, we're going to be talking about his first missionary journey. Continue. But what I, what I would like you to do today and as you leave here is think about what it is that God might be calling you to and how you're responding to that or not responding to that. Who are the people that God's placed around you that are your encouragers and that can be your mentors in the faith? And how are you going to answer that call? Let's pray. Father, we come and we confess to you that oftentimes much of what's going on in our lives that we are unhappy about or distressed about uh, are ways in which you are actually preparing us uh, to be in ministry to those around us. So we ask you to give us eyes of wisdom to see that. And we confess to you that oftentimes when we are wrestling with folks, we, we really are uncomfortable with uh, not uh, passing judgment upon them. So we, we ask you to pour out forgiveness and mercy on us. And so often we're not sure what to do. We don't know what to do with this call you place on our hearts. And so we thank you for those brothers and sisters you place around us who, who guide us and, and who help us to see it and to claim it. Through all of that, Father, we ask you to give us hearts of boldness that like our brother Paul, we might not only experience your call, but we might live into it with all we are and all we have. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.